Thanks so much, Kate. Um, yeah, we are going through the last um, message in this series we've been doing this year. If you've been tracking with us um, from the start of the year, we've just been going through more of Matthew's gospel, um, and this, this part's of called The Man. We started in chapter 11, uh, we've done 12, and we're just coming to the end of chapter 13 uh, today, and kind of summarizing and, and bringing to an end this um, theme of these chapters that we've been looking at, which is basically lots of people responding to Jesus in different ways, and Jesus um, doing things that people didn't expect, and then people kind of not really computing with that. Uh, some people coming with faith, but some people being offended by him or confused by him, some people rejecting him, and even opposing him. Uh, and just recently, we've been um, in, in chapter 13 looking at the, the parables of Jesus, and it's interesting in the context, because Jesus tells these parables um, as kind of commentary on what's happening around him. Like, like people are rejecting him, people are responding to him different ways. So then he, he starts teaching in parables, which is a bit confusing as well. And it's also a narrative that's really saying, well, actually, this is what's going on in his ministry. He's really talking about himself because he's come to announce the kingdom. And then the parables are all about what the kingdom of God is like. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's that it's not what they expected, uh, but it is really legit. It's, it's the kingdom. He, he's working. Jesus is the one they're waiting for. It just doesn't look quite like what they expected. So um, we're basically going to sort of bring this to a bit of a close today. And, um, but just before that, I thought we'd just briefly think back on these parables that Jesus has been telling and how they've kind of been a commentary on his ministry and the nature of the kingdom. He started by talking about a sower that, that goes out and casts lots of seed, and Jesus says the seed is the message of the kingdom. So Jesus is the sower. He's going out, he's casting, he's really generous, he, he spreads this message, but people are responding in different ways. The problem is not Jesus and his message. The problem is that certain people are listening and certain people aren't. It's the soils. And if it lands in people who are really listening, they'll bear fruit. If it lands in people who are confused or they're distracted or they have other things, it doesn't really make a difference to their lives. So Jesus is, is this commentary on his kingdom message. The next um, parable, which is also the other one that has an explanation, is the parable of the weeds, which is about how, well, Jesus is doing ministry, but he has all these enemies, which is strange. Like, if, if he was really the son of God, if he was really bringing God's kingdom, surely at least the other Israelites would be believing him. But he has enemies even among the religious leaders and people opposing him. And, and what's the go with that? And this, this parable says, well, God has an enemy who's planted weeds in the field in the nighttime. And, and Jesus' disciples are probably keen to go and get rid of the weeds and get rid of the evil and get rid of Jesus' opposition and, and deal with them. And Jesus says, no, you're to wait. God will deal with evil. He will weed the world, but it will be at the end. It's not now. Now's the time for patience. These are these two big parables in this section. But then there's these other ones, and these are actually so giving commentary and sharing secrets about the kingdom, that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, or it's like yeast. It's starting small, it's starting hidden, but it will be pervasive, and it will be transformative. So Jesus' ministry looks small, it might be weak, but as we know, even the fact that we're here, it will be pervasive and transformative. Um, as Sam talked about last week, Jesus' kingdom may look weak in his ministry, may not look quite like what people thought, may look insignificant, but it's actually the greatest treasure in the world. People who find it 
find the one thing that's worth giving up everything else for, like a man finding treasure in a field. And most of these parables have been field parables, right, farming parables, except for the, the kitchen one, making yeast, which is kind of using wheat from a field. But these last couple, the, the last one from last week, is a fisherman parable, right, looking for a, a pearl in the sea. And one of these last ones today is about a net, which is Jesus is, is using familiar things like farming, and then he uses even more familiar things to the disciples like fishing. Um, and we're going to look at this one today and then one other one that he sort of finishes off with. So I might just pray quickly and then we'll, then we'll look at this, this parable. Just thank you, Jesus, for your, your wisdom and your ways, um, for revealing yourself to us, for your word. Just ask that you'd speak to us and give us ears to hear, as you say, and give us hearts to listen to your word and, and respond in faith. And yeah, we just ask you to speak to us by your spirit today in your name. Amen. Okay, so um, this is the parable of the net, is often called. So Jesus says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but the bad they threw away. So again, Jesus is using very familiar things that would have been very everyday tasks and, and experiences of people in that day. And he's, in some ways, he uses this as a way to test people's hearts. Some people might come to listen to him and say, who's this guy? He's just talking about fishing. He's just talking about seeds. I wanted to hear something significant. And it, and it kind of tests people. But if they actually really listen, he's sharing secrets about the kingdom for those who have ears to hear, who they're really listening. He's talking about a type of net. Um, again, I'm not a fisherman or a farmer or anything, so, but um, just from some reading, it's this idea of a drag net. So like two big ships um, that would have been separated, a big net that goes between them with weights, so the net goes down. So imagine like the net is like a big undersea under wall, and these two boats go together, and the net is a wall, and they come towards the shore. And as you can imagine, they just catch anything that's there. Um, it, so it's a whole mix of stuff. And so therefore, once the boats get to the shore, the fishermen have to sit and they sort through the catch. And hopefully they've caught some really good stuff, but they would have caught a whole lot of rubbish and other stuff that you can't eat as well. Um, particularly for the Jews, there would be things that are clean and things that are unclean, and they need to sort through them. This is the sort of picture that they would have had that Jesus is picturing as well. He says, then, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, this is kind of similar to the parable of the weeds. And we, we talked a bit about this. And actually, some of the wording there is the same wording from the parable of the weeds. So there's a lot of commonality with that. Um, encourage you for a bit of a deeper teaching on, on what Jesus is talking about and how we understand hell and how that it makes sense of what he's saying here. Encourage you to go back and look at the parable of the weeds message that I shared a little while ago. I won't go into too much detail today. But effectively, what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom message that goes out um, is like a big net that is just going out for everybody. I think it's similar to the parable of the sower. Like the seed just goes out. It's generous. It just goes out to anyone who's listening. Jesus is sowing seed. In a similar way, the kingdom message is like a wall, a big net that's just going forward, and it's just catching whatever is there, right? Like there's this, this, this net that goes forward. 
And in the net, there is a variety of responses, just like there's a variety of fish. In Jesus' ministry, his message is going forward, and there's a variety of responses to Jesus, hostile, open, confused. They're all being um, hearing this message. But that's how it is now. But the point of the parable is that one day there will be a separation. There's a great mixture of responses now, but there will be a great separation then. In some ways, Jesus' ministry and kingdom message may look weak and insignificant because lots of people are not responding to him. If, and you might think, well, if he was really the one, surely more people would be responding to him, but people are confused about him, and they listen to him, and they like that he does miracles, but they don't really want to follow him, and even the religious leaders are opposed to him. But Jesus, in his commentary on that, says that that's how it is now. The kingdom is like a big net. It's just catching everyone. It's catching all the responses. There will be a mixture of responses now. But at the end, there will be a big separation. In some ways, the disciples probably wanted the separation now, to, to, be, to know who's in, who's out now. But Jesus says, now's the broad net, but there will be a day when there's separation. It's kind of like the parable of the weeds. Um, the, the disciples want to go and weed, the, get rid of the weeds, but Jesus says, well, no, you'll do damage if you do that. You need to wait. It's a call to be patient. Now is the time for the open net, a mixture of responses. Now is the season what we call is a time of grace. God's kingdom has come, and, and there's, a, there's a period of amnesty, effectively, or, of grace. God wants everyone to come into his kingdom. So the message goes out, and this is an open door to come in through Christ. And there's an allowable that there's a mixture of responses now. But there's a time coming when it will not be a time of grace, but a time of judgment. A time when God sets the world right, when God puts an end to evil, when people who don't want to trust him or submit to him won't be allowed to continue in rebellion. God will actually renew the whole world and deal with not just the really bad people, but all people who are opposed to him and all things that are opposed to him. And again, I talk about this more in, in that parable of the weeds message, but this, this language is pretty intense, but Jesus is talking about language of this, this is about fire, uh, which is a place of, of destruction or dehumanization, and there'll be loss, there's weeping and loss, and there's gnashing of teeth, frustration. God will put a limit and contain human evil and separate and bring his kingdom in fullness. So there's probably two sort of things we can take from this parable what, what Jesus is kind of saying, I think, and there might be different relevances at different times. I think particularly for his disciples who he was speaking to, the relevance of the par parable is that there's a need to wait. Um, their issue was probably more that they wanted God to judge the world. They wanted God to deal with the Romans. They wanted God to deal with, with bad people or people who are opposed to God, but the message is, no, wait. You need to be patient. But God will judge in the end. Jesus says, at the end of the age, he, he will separate. He will vindicate. He will come and bring uh, renewal to the whole world and, and deal with evil. And this is the encouragement to his disciples particularly to, to wait, to be patient, to actually tolerate the fact that there's people who reject God and, and uh, oppose him and, um, and ultimately even in the story of Jesus will kill him. God allows that. Right, for a, season, for a season and a purpose of grace, but he will bring um, an end to that. 
But probably the more important message for us, um, we probably more so understand grace, right, and, and, and understand that God's heart is, is for grace and, and are good with that. But there's also a need in this parable for us to wake up because the truth is God will judge in the end. And Jesus is open and honest about that. Yes, there's a time of grace. God's heart is for grace. God sent his son and, and died for the world in grace. Like God wants no one to perish. But in the end, he will set things right. He will separate. And the separation will be between those who trust Jesus and receive his forgiveness and receive his life by the Spirit and follow him and know him and those who don't. And that will ultimately be the only thing that matters. See, ultimately, we need to wake up because God will judge, and the only thing that will matter in the end is whether we've trusted, followed, known, loved Jesus. Ultimately. And, and imagine that, right? Like, this is the parable he's saying in, in, in what may look like an insignificant ministry, but his point is it looks insignificant because the net's broad, there's allowable to have lots of responses, but don't let that deceive you because on that day, there will be only one response that matters. Our place in his kingdom, the way that we've contributed to it. Uh, Jesus says this in a similar way um, in this passage in Mark. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Um, as we, we looked at that awesome parable last week of, of the joy of the kingdom and how much of a treasure it is, and if we see the treasure of the kingdom, it's a joy to give up all for it, because it's the greatest treasure. But here we also see that if we hold to any other treasure, ultimately the, ki- the treasure of the kingdom is the only one that will last. If we, if we hold to any other treasure and think we don't want Jesus, we just want this, ultimately we'll lose everything on that day. Um, so it's the only treasure that lasts. It's the only true treasure. So there's a need to wait patiently with difficulty and, and evil in the world. And maybe we look at the world even in our, in our day and age and we think, well, there's lots of issues and, and what's God doing and where's his kingdom and is Jesus really in charge? And, and his message would be, well, the kingdom of heaven's like a net. Right? And there's a mixture of responses. But it will arrive at the shore one day and there will be a great separation. So Jesus has been talking to his disciples and um, explaining these um, truths about the kingdom in response to their question, because they, they asked him a question. They said, hey, why do you talk in parables, right? Like, like, this is a good opportunity to be really clear, and now you're telling these strange stories. And then in response, he told them parables, right, <laughs> to explain to them. And, and then when they weren't sure about what the parable meant, they asked him, and then he explained what it meant. So, so Jesus is teaching them as they ask questions. So Jesus now asks them, have you understood all these things? Yes, they replied. They claim to understand. We, we know going forward in the Gospels is lots they don't understand, but they claim to understand. They say, yep, we get it. All right. And Jesus says to them, another parable. Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So in response to understanding, yes, Jesus, we understand, he tells a parable about um, someone who's been trained in the kingdom, like they have been or claim to be now, but they're like someone who's rich and has a great house and has a storeroom with great treasure, and they're to bring out treasure that is new and old. And you see, receiving great treasure means having the great responsibility and privilege of sharing it. 
They understand. And now Jesus says, well, now you understand you're responsible to share. And not just responsible as a duty, but actually a privilege. They've been entrusted with the secrets of the kingdom, the treasures of the kingdom. And it's not so that they can just feel great about themselves and special and sort of just keep it to themselves. Jesus is sharing with it so then they can teach and they can share with others. Um, this idea of sharing old treasure as well as new is, is they will use what they've already been trained and learnt about, about the God of Israel from the Old Testament. They, they'll teach those truths that they've been trained in already, but how they point to Jesus, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And they will teach the new truths that Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom and who Jesus is and what he's doing. So they're to use all the knowledge they have, all centered around Christ, to share treasure as part of their responsibility and privilege. And it's true for us then as well. If we understand, if we've received the treasure of God's kingdom, of his work in the world, of his spirit, of Jesus, then we also have the great responsibility and the great privilege of sharing that treasure with others. And we might share new treasure and old. We might think, well, all the treasure is old in a lot of ways, right? Because the message of the gospel is old to us now, right? It was new when Jesus is speaking, but now it's 2,000 years old, and we don't add to that message. We, we share the message of Christ and the teaching of the apostles, but we also need to share it in new ways. We need to share it in ways that are good news to people, in ways that make sense in our day and age and our culture. We need to share old treasure and new treasure and, and share treasure from what we've been given and um, the privilege that we have. Because it may not seem like it, but when we share Jesus with people, when, when you are a witness to Jesus in your workplace or life or ministry, when you share the Scriptures, you're sharing the greatest treasure in the world. <laughs> like, it seems like a humble, ordinary thing, but if it's true, the message of Christ is the most precious thing. You're someone who's incredibly rich, who's bringing out of a storehouse treasures to share with people. And if it's true that Jesus is the true treasure, then Christians are the absolute richest people in the world. Anybody else who's a billionaire but doesn't have Jesus is absolutely poor. They have nothing. We're so framed to think that riches is about money. But if Jesus says the kingdom is the only treasure that will last, the kingdom is the greatest treasure, then we are the absolute richest and we have an abundance of treasure to share. And so kind of, I suppose, like often it's not good to f flout your wealth, I guess, right? Or tell people about your wealth. That's not, it's probably more likely to sort of keep it to yourself. But it's not that th there's something that we need to stockpile, right? Like if we share the message, it's available for anybody. It's, it's available to be multiplied. And as we share it, it's not so that we can look great, but so that others can see the beauty and the treasure of Jesus. So we can be people who are not just generous with our money, but generous with our message in sharing this treasure of Christ with the world. So that, that's a cool little parable that Jesus gives, the responsibility, the commissioning to share this treasure with the disciples. I think it's good for us as well. Then this um, chapter 13 finishes, and this actually finishes this section from that started in chapter 11, um, and we'll finish here at chapter 13. Um, with this story, it says this, When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. 
Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? So we'll just go back for a sec. So he, he goes to his own town, right? He's finished his parables. There's been this section of different responses to Jesus, and now he tr- decides to go back to Nazareth. He's been teaching in, in different places. He's not been home. Surely they've probably heard about him, um, but now he's coming home. He, his parents, had, his mum had been concerned about him previously in, in the last chapter as well, so maybe he's even gone home at her request. We don't know, um, but, he, but he goes home, and people are still amazed at him, right? They, they hear him teaching, and it says they're amazed, um, they, they talk about his miraculous powers, so perhaps he was still doing miracles there, and they saw them. Um, so it's not that they didn't see his wisdom and miracles, they saw them, but then they start us saying these rhetorical questions because he just doesn't fit in their categories. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. It's interesting that um, the start of this section in chapter 11 started with the story of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin in prison, kind of doubting who Jesus is because he's in prison. And if Jesus is the coming one, why is Jesus, John, his cousin in prison? But John goes and asks Jesus this question. Jesus gives an answer and says, no, this, I really am the one. And then he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's interesting. He says that to John. But now at the end of this section, Jesus' own family are offended by him because he doesn't fit their categories. He's too familiar. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So he's, he did miracles, right? He spoke. They were amazed, but they're confused. He doesn't fit their categories. Instead of seeking him humbly and, and asking him and, and, and searching more, they just don't get it. <laughs> they just say, hey, we know this guy. He didn't do this when he was growing up, and that's offensive to us, and they reject him. And then because they don't believe him, he stops doing miracles. Um, and we can see that great familiarity can hide the greatness of Jesus. Um, I, I feel like I experienced this in a little way. I'm obviously not comparing myself, but it's an interesting um, thing that happened to me the other week. I was at a party, and um, there's a lot of people I knew, and then was introduced to someone that I, I had known of, um, but I didn't, I didn't think that I'd met them. And as I was being introduced to them, I kind of thought that they probably knew me um, because I'm a pastor here, and uh, the, the, one of their daughters had come to do some things here, and I kind of thought that would be the connection, and maybe I even had a bit of pride in that, like, of like, oh, well, people kind of know who I am because I'm a pastor here at the church, and and people kind of know that. So I kind of thought when I was going to be introduced that that would be the connection. But when I was introduced, they sort of said, oh, yeah, this is, you know, Tim. And, and their response was, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember when you were this little kid, all right? Like, I remember when you grew up, and I know your mom, and I, you used to come to the playgroup and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, and it was good. It was like a humbling thing. Oh, like, I thought they'd know me because I'm the pastor, and they know me because I'm a little kid. <laughs> and and, and it, was, it, was, it was a good experience. But I wonder if that's kind of similar to what was happening here in the sense that Jesus 
is this miracle worker and, and teacher, and he's well known as the one announcing the kingdom, and there's this movement that's happening, and that's how people know him and want to go see him, and there's all these crowds. But when he comes to his hometown, that's not how people know him. They know him as the little kid that grew up down the street. <laughs> they don't see him as the miracle worker and, and the teacher. They, they see him as, as the one that they, they knew as a baby. And it's, and it's interesting that they didn't, they didn't not believe him because his miracles were so great or because his teaching was so great or because he was saying things so great. They didn't believe him because he was so familiar, because they knew him so well, because they'd seen him grow up. They could not compute that actually this could be God working powerfully. This could be the Lord meeting us. This could be the Messiah. They just couldn't do that. And I think th- there's some... Um, grace, I guess, like, it could be easy to judge for that, but it probably is quite a humble thing, the need for quite a lot of humility to acknowledge that the kid down the street could be the son of God, right? The kid that you saw grow up is the one that you need to worship and and follow and give up everything for, like that, there needs to be a whole lot of openness to, to do that, but it's interesting that it's the familiarity that was the stumbling block, it was that they, they knew him too well that they weren't open to listening, to questioning, to seeking. They just thought, we, we know that guy, and, and we know that's not who he is, and maybe he's just talking up something big, and th- they we're just offended by that. Like, who does, who does he think he is? Um, there was this pride that came from that, rather than a humble openness that maybe God is really at work here, even in the familiar, even in the ordinary, even in our town. And perhaps um, there's a principle for us in that as well, that maybe there's ways that God is at work in people who are very familiar to us that we can find it hard to see because they're so familiar or they're so ordinary or they we're just so used to them that it's hard to see that actually God might be doing something amazing through them, but there needs to be a humility to be able to see it. Because it's a tragedy that Jesus' own town missed him. Like, like, they were so close to him, but they missed seeing who he was. It's a tragedy. Um, not that it was too strange, but too ordinary. And maybe in, in a similar way, God may be working in ways that are quite ordinary, in people that are, seem ordinary or seem familiar. He may be still working great things, but it requires faith and humility to see that, to trust that and not be offended. It was their familiarity that killed their faith. Let us not let our familiarity with those around us or even our familiarity with our experience of God and the the comfortableness of our relationship with God block us from things He may do that are different and that are new and that may not fit our categories. We may be able to be too comfortable that we think, oh, we're offended by that rather than having a humility that actually seeks and asks and relies on Him. So we've been going through this chapter And I think the thing that is so important that Jesus highlights again and again, he keeps saying, do you have ears to hear? Effectively saying, are you listening? And the posture is in the heart, to have a heart that truly listens, which is humble, that's willing to receive the seed of Jesus' word and not be distracted, but actually let it bear fruit. Um, people didn't seem to have so much of an issue believing that he was doing miracles. Like, no one's saying, like, he didn't do miracles. If anything, he, they, they definitely did miracles and taught amazing. But if people aren't listening to him, they have to fit him in some other category. 
um, of that. And, and people even say, well, he's doing it by the power of evil um, because they're not listening to him. He wasn't doing what they expected. He w- didn't seem to be as powerful or as political. He didn't follow the temple protocols. Um, but the truth is, he was and is the one. He is. He was the one. And even though it didn't look like it, he's the one who will judge and separate in the end. He is incredibly powerful. Even though he looked ordinary, he's the most extraordinary person in the world. Even though he looked incredibly humble, he has the name that will be exalted above every name. And the challenge for us then is when Jesus doesn't fit our expectations, when God's not working in ways that we expect, or he's not doing what we think he should do, how do we respond? And do we respond with a humble listening, seeking, asking questions like John, his cousin, did, like the disciples did? Or do we just have to think that the problem's with him and he should conform to us? Others didn't hear. They were distracted. They were offended. They left when it got hard. They didn't understand Jesus, so they put him into another category and end up rejecting him. And the challenge for us is to stay open, to stay humble, because he is the Lord. He is the greatest treasure. We need to not reject him, but trust him, because he is the man. He's the center of everything. He's the Lord of history. And in the end, the only thing that will matter is how we have responded to him. So as we finish this series, we've been talking lots about responding. I suppose it's this, this call to respond to him because he is the Lord. He is alive. He's at work in our hearts, and our lives, in our church. And the only thing that matters is to trust and follow him. And maybe that's something we need to renew, um, our heart of listening, openness to him. Or maybe it's something even for the first time to actually not just be familiar with Jesus, not just be in the net having the message come, but actually listen and let the seed come into our hearts and bear fruit by trusting him. The need to actually respond to Jesus, actually believe him and trust him with your life and decide to follow him. And maybe if you haven't actually personally done that, there's a great need to do that, to respond to Jesus in faith, to trust him and decide to follow him. As we finish, I just want to share this um, quote that I love by G.K. Chesterton, um, talking about, um, it's kind of, he's talking about Christianity and different responses to Christianity, but I think it's relevant with different responses to Christ. As we've been going through these chapters, there's been lots of different responses to Jesus, and some of them are right being because he's too familiar. Uh, some of them have been because he's too strange or too powerful. Some John, they don't like John the Baptist because he doesn't eat enough food, and they don't like Jesus because he eats too much, and it's like these two extremes, and you just can't seem to please. G.K. Chesterton, on this, he says this analogy. He says, suppose we heard of an unknown man spoken of by many men. Suppose we were puzzled to hear that some men said he was too tall and some too short. Some objected to his fatness. Some lamented his leanness. Some thought him too dark and some too fair. One explanation would be that he might be an odd shape. But there's another explanation. He might be the right shape. Outrageously tall men might feel him too short. Very short men might feel him too tall. Old bucks who are growing stout might consider him insufficiently filled out. Others who are growing thin might feel that he expanded beyond the narrow lines of elegance. Perhaps those who have pale hair called him a dark man, while those who are dark called him distinctly blonde. Perhaps, in short, this extraordinary thing is really the ordinary thing. 
at least the normal thing, the center. Perhaps, after all, it is Christianity that is sane, and all its critics are mad in various ways. In many ways, Jesus, the multiple responses to Jesus, Jesus is not the problem. (laughs) The people responding to him are the problem. He's the one with no problem. He's the perfect one. And if we're not responding to him, it's because of us. We need to conform to him. We need to humble ourselves to him. We need to receive him. So let's, let's pray and let's respond today. Maybe we could stand together. Yeah, we thank you. Thank you so much, Lord, for your generosity and your message, your teaching, your kindness to us. Even in our day, we have your word, we have your church, we have your spirit. And we just pray that you would give us hearts and ears to listen and respond to you, God. Give us hearts to be awake and aware of the treasure and the the seriousness and the wonder and the beauty of your kingdom and your work in the world. Give us faith to see you and to respond to you rightly. And we just confess that we are weak, uh, we are distracted, you know our hearts um, so easily doubt, our ears are so easily blocked. We desperately need your mercy and your grace to reveal yourself to us afresh, to keep us on the path, to humble ourselves before you. And we just ask, even in this moment, God, when there's There's ways that we've been offended by you or have been in a posture of doubt towards you or even rejection towards you. Just ask that you'd forgive us and give us humble, listening hearts that respond rightly to you, even in our weakness. We offer you our faith. We offer you our doubt. We ask you to help us with our unbelief and help us to respond to you rightly in accordance with your worth and your power, Jesus. Just pray this in your name. Amen.